Turn with me, if you could, to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6 in preparation for the sermon tonight. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Now this congregation is well-versed in reformed distinctives. You have long-held quality services in which you taught through all of scripture, perhaps more than most churches today, especially when dealing with these, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Therefore, this evening's lesson on the Second Commandment, uh, I will stay strictly in this text and not teach directly on the regulative principle of worship. reformed principle that teaches that if something is not commanded in scripture, it is forbidden in worship. If you have questions on the regulative principle, I will refer you to the church library uh, and to the sermon posted online uh, that Dan gave last June on this second commandment and shorter catechism questions 49 through 52. It was actually the first service that evening service that we attended uh, here in this church. Uh, He addresses the whole concept very well in a pastoral and instructive manner, and I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. Now, instead of covering the regulative principle for you folks, once again, I will be addressing more directly the main thrust of this passage before us, the negative aspect of this commandment that God's people shall not make, bow down to, or worship any graven image. Now, question 109 of the Westminster Larger Catechism is somewhat infamous amongst Presbyterians in the thoroughness of its prohibitions. It applies the second commandment very thoroughly and to the uttermost, and rightly so, and I won't pretend to deal with all the points that the Larger Catechism addresses. It was quite a long reading, wasn't it? It shows clearly, though, the broad application of this commandment, and I would commend to you all to read through questions 107 to 110 this week with your families for family worship or by yourselves. Uh, Chew on it a little bit. There's a lot to chew on there. Its application can be categorized in, in three general steps, which I will address in turn tonight. One, against false gods. Two, against false Christs. And three, for the real Christ, against false gods, against false Christs, and for the real Christ. 
So first then, it speaks of false gods, all the various small g gods of the world's religions, both in and out of scripture. Scripture is abundantly clear concerning this. These gods do not exist, and to worship them at all is blasphemy and empty heathenism. Now we can pretty clearly see what our Lord thinks of worshiping other gods from countless points of scripture in the Old Testament. He openly mocks these false gods, uh, such as the Baals or the Asherim of the Old, Covenant, or Old Testament Philistines and Canaanites. To worship false gods is not simply a primitive spirituality. I want to get this as a starting point. A lot of world religions talk today thinks of evolution of religion, and they start in primitive forms of religion and reach towards higher ends, ending in, well, modern-day post-critical theory. Uh, but this is not an actual spiritual truth for a less enlightened people. Both the savage tribesmen who worships rocks and trees and the enlightened Western Hindu that went to Princeton and has all sorts of fancy degrees and who points to the high moral philosophy of Eastern thought are condemned in the eyes of the Lord. They both must repent and believe, for Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? There are not multiple ways to heaven. There is one narrow and straight way. And even as I address this briefly, I want to hammer it home as there are many people here, maybe not here today, but in the Christian church who, although they claim the name of Christians, are in the name of openness and tolerance will leave room for other false gods. But our God, says through Isaiah, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Our Lord couldn't be more clear. Let us cling to our only rock and redeemer and not pretend that any others exist or even give allowance for them. We cannot tolerate any false religion. To do so, even to play nice with others who are not Christians, is to forget where our allegiance lies and to forget the urgency of the message with which with Christ calls us to repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I was speaking recently to a Buddhist chaplain, uh, a friend of mine who I work with quite closely, He's very modern and very Western. Uh, he was raised Roman Catholic until he found enlightenment in the Buddha and Buddhist teaching. And over a beer, he jokingly asked me, so I guess you think I'm going to hell for being a Buddhist. And he, he did ask it jokingly because every other Christian that he had asked had said, no, I don't think so. I mean, Jesus is a nice person and he wouldn't condemn people to hell. Right, it's not that serious. God loves all people. He was quite surprised then when I said, yes, if you don't repent and believe in Jesus, 
you will go to hell. And then I proceeded to give him the gospel. I didn't just leave it there. He has not yet turned from his false ways. He still is worshiping both himself and these other false gods. But it's my duty to continue to give him the gospel as long as I know the man. And it's my duty not because I'm a chaplain candidate. It's not my duty because I'm a seminarian. It's my duty because I am a Christian. And that's what I want to push home with you all tonight. Brothers, sisters, will you plead with the lost? If so, start by openly confessing what is true. As the great uh, musician Aaron Tippin once sang, you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Take a stand for the gospel. Don't be afraid to say what's true. The same song continues, whatever you'll do today, you got to sleep with tonight. Take that chance to speak with your coworker or your your classmate, your in-laws that you avoid uh, talking about religion with. Tell them of Christ. Let them know that he and no other false god or system is the only way to heaven. From false gods, then, we move on to false Christs, and really they're quite similar. Now, in his sermon on this text in Deuteronomy 12, Moses himself fully explains the repercussions of this second commandment. Moses says plainly, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Plainly put, we do not make or use images of our God. We do not use images in worship, public or private. And this applies to all members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To make any image of any person of the Trinity, incarnate or not, is to try to approach God outside of the ways that Scripture commands. Now, as we've recently addressed in our adult Sunday school class, uh, our God is invisible to begin with. That's one of his attributes. He's a spirit, right? And since we cannot see him in his invisibility, we ought not to fashion from our own imagination images of what we think he would look like. In this way, really all images are in fact reflections of men and our own thoughts, especially images of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who are often depicted with attributes that they clearly don't have. How many times has our Lord been depicted as a weak beggar, gently knocking at the doors of your hearts, right? that you would let him into your heart, when in fact he is the Lord of hosts, of angel armies, a strong deliverer, and a mighty fortress? And how many times has our Lord been depicted as a muscular power lifter, an Aryan ubermensch that's going to conquer the world, when in fact he is the meek and gentle Lamb of God, the babe who lay in the manger? How amazingly blasphemous are both depictions. We know him by his word. In fact, he is the word made flesh. So let us stick to his word when we're describing him and not make biased, false representations of our God. Now, when we make images, whether in our minds, as the confession and the 
catechism state, in a drawing or in a crucifix up on a wall, we are making a false idea of God. And that's why the prophet Habakkuk says idols are teachers of lies, for its maker trusts in his creation when he makes a speechless idol. As Christians, we ought to know better. As Paul says, being then of God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And now I would encourage you all to consider the applications, the implications for your own lives. This isn't just a problem out there in those other churches. We can and very easily do in our own minds put up any image or idol and use it as a base placeholder for the glory of God. As the theologian George Bush puts it, and follow with the argument here, God knows the downward and deteriorating tendencies of our own nature, even in its best state. And he sees that the employment, the use of outward symbols of worship would gradually tend to lower the standard of pious feeling and finally to withdraw the mind from the ultimate spiritual object and fix it on a gross, sensible medium. James Usher perhaps puts it more succinctly. God by images is, as it were, mocked. I'm I'm careful when I say this next part because I know my own predilections. But I would be delinquent if I did not hear mention one of the greatest false Christs within the Christian world today, the Pope of Rome. He himself claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth, a title clearly reserved for the Holy Spirit. He claims divine supremacy over all Christians, usurping the kingly authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he and his church offer Christ to be sacrificed daily in the form of the Catholic Mass. Now, I'm preaching against false religion and against false Christianity, and to be clear, in offering the Mass, the Church of Rome is committing blasphemy, sacrilege, and hypocrisy, clearly transgressing this second commandment in multiple ways. The empty superstition that has surrounded the Mass and the Eucharist for many years might be fading in Catholic practice, but it is not gone yet. And every consistent Christian must be as clear addressing the blasphemy of the Mass and the worship of the Eucharist as he is the blasphemy of all other false religions. Now our Lord could just leave it at the condemnation, the negative aspect here that I've been describing. You shall not make for yourself a carved image and bow down to and worship them. And we could take that at face value. He is God, and he alone has the right to determine right from wrong. But he's also gracious, and he explains himself as we continue through this text. He says in verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He loves his people, his bride, so much that he is not willing to share their affections with anyone else. Indeed, his bride should only have eyes for him and only serve him, worship him as he wants to be. 
the worship of any other gods or images of God only rightly provokes the jealous anger of God. It's spiritual adultery. And the Catechism puts it this way, the Lord has revengeful indignation against all false worship as being a spiritual whoredom. Strong language. Do you believe it? And are you not, as the church, the bride of Christ? Would you be jealous for him? Don't pine over the image of your bridegroom when the man himself is waiting to greet us. We don't need gods or images of gods out there when God is present in and with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. The apostle makes this unity with Christ and separation from the world extremely clear when he says, what accord has Christ with Balliol? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Indeed, we are the temples of the living God as he lives in us. So why do we look for outward forms to guide our worship? This church building, for instance, is no more holy than any other building. But everywhere a Christian goes, he should shine the glory of his God all the brighter if we are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. And since, as, he's, as uh, the apostle says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And now we come to verse 6 in the text and to the real Christ himself. And who reading this text cannot marvel at the wonderful love of God, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Hear me in this, please. While the Lord is just and will punish those who disobey his commandments, God will show steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. How does he best show his love to us? By giving us his son. Jesus Christ came as God incarnate, not just as an image, a painting, a depiction, but the real thing itself. And John's gospel clearly puts this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus also was raised bodily from the dead. Now, in a lot of our churches, we see an empty cross. And it's empty for a reason. What's the old question they asked at the tomb? Why seek ye the living way down here among the dead? He's not here, for he is risen. And indeed, I'll ask all of you, why would you seek the living Christ amongst idols that never were alive? Jesus, friends, is indeed still the incarnate God, our resurrected king. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. 
And so for us to make images of him here in this world is to replace him. It betrays a kind of unbelief. Do we really believe that he was God, is God incarnate? Do we believe that he was and is raised bodily? Do we trust in the name of the Lord our God? For now, brothers, that Christ is risen. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen here in this world are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. If anything is going to stick with you tonight, let that line stick with you. And are you walking by faith, brothers, sisters? Or are you relying on yourself, on your own vision, your own plans, your own images of, of God and how he should act? We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, it's true that it's not wrong in itself to look to God. Indeed, we are commanded to. Isaiah 31 says, Woe to those who do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And David urges the faithful to seek the Lord in his strength and seek his presence continually. And that there is one thing that he seeks after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. But we look to our Lord, as David does here, as one who is in heaven, not a figurine on a church or a painting on a wall. And indeed, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, Deuteronomy 12 says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. We do not use images in our worship, public or private, because we look forward to something that is so much greater. Where is the rest and the inheritance that the Lord is giving us? It's not in this world. Not even in the public worship of the church on the Lord's Day. Our rest, our inheritance, is with Christ in heaven forever. Remember, brothers, sisters, what Stephen saw when he died, the first of many martyrs for our faith. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, you will see Christ. You will see him and in such splendor and glory. But not yet. Not yet. There is in us all a a sense of the absence of Christ here and of his presence in heaven. This is the already and not yet contrast of our place in redemptive in, in the history of God's people. Christ has risen and Christ is coming. In the meantime, as we wait for our coming Lord, we do not have him pictured for us. Or we, excuse me, we do have him pictured for us, but not in images, but in the preaching of the word and in the sacraments. Right? Today was a, a communion Sunday. How wonderful it is to look on the sacraments and to reflect on what the Lord has done and what he is doing now. The Heidelberg Catechism concludes its address of the second commandment by saying that God wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. And you all say you're a means of grace church. And don't you know that in the right spirit-filled preaching of the gospel of Jesus by Dan here every Lord's Day, you have Christ Galatians 3.1 says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Not because Jesus was killed in Galatia, but because the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ was preached to the Galatians. We don't need to watch a Mel Gibson movie to know that Christ died for us. In fact, we know what he did all the better when we hear his gospel preached. And when we read his word, Christ is with you in the preaching, the lively preaching of the word. Now, plainly, you all are are physically here tonight, or those watching. You took the time to come to church, and, and that shows the value you already put on attending the service of the word on the Lord's Day. So I don't mean to discredit you when I say this, but to challenge you. Do you value the preaching? Do you cling to the preaching? Do you love the preaching, however the imperfect the preacher might be, for what it is, namely Christ, pictured among you? In the teaching you get here, in the consistent sacrifice and perseverance of your pastor in preaching Christ and him crucified, there, that is the image of Christ among you. Do you take it as such? The Lord shows his steadfast love to you and to your children by the preaching of the word. So don't just attend the meeting, but dwell in the word as it's preached. There alone is forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. Cling to the word that comes from God and flee from the wrath to come. God commands through Isaiah, look unto me, And be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Would you be saved, brothers and sisters? Then look to the only one who can save, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't look to him, though, in images or in imaginations or feelings or persuasions, but look to the real person of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the Lord indeed has shown his steadfast love to so many of thousands of those that have gone before in the Christian life. They have loved him. They have kept his commandments, those honest, plain, Bible-believing Christians. Remember that we worship by faith and not by sight in this present age. But also, may we pray honestly in the words of the great hymn, It is well with my soul, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Christian, you are going to a far better country. We will see with our own eyes, and our faith shall be sight as we look upon the incarnate Lord in person. Until then, we wait and we hope expectantly for the coming of our Lord. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.